Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 9 through 12 this morning. And the theme is to walk worthy of your calling. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, your translation may have rearranged verse 11 and 12 differently than, than the uh, New American Standard that I just read from. So you may have been kind of getting lost in there, but, but different translations organize the material and the syntax of verse 11 and 12 differently. So that's just kind of a, a heads up. Okay, so in this passage, Paul is still defending himself against the tax of those who were trying to, to ruin his reputation and also undermine the gospel of Christ. And again, he expresses several times in this passage that he's confident that the Thessalonians can bear witness to the truthfulness of his claims. He makes that statement, you recall several times, or you are witnesses, or just as you know, found in verse 9, 10, and 11. And in addition, again for the second time, he calls God to be his witness in verse 10. So where before Paul in the previous section we saw last week uh, described his ministry to them in part as a nursing mother who in gentleness and tenderness cares and loves her children. So he used that analogy in the previous passage. In this analogy, as you noticed, he now refers to himself as their spiritual father. And we see that in verse 11. He says again, I'm imploring each of you as a father would his own children. So it's interesting that Paul has employed the analogy of both being a mother in the, in the gentleness and the love and the tenderness to bring them into the kingdom, but then also as a father, as he instructs them and exhorts them and implores them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. It's interesting, so in this passage, therefore, that Paul is really writing out of seeing himself as their spiritual father. So there's a great application here, not only for the dads in the church, but also for anyone really who is a spiritual leader over other people to have the kind of influence that Paul is going to describe in this passage. You know, it was customary back then for sons to follow in the footsteps of their fathers. That doesn't always happen today. But if the father was a farmer, the son would be a farmer. If the father was a carpenter, like Jesus' stepfather, Joseph, was a carpenter, then Jesus became a carpenter. If your father was a fisherman, 
Then like James and John, they became fishermen. And there's a sense in which back in this day and age, the, the custom strongly moved sons to follow in the same work as their father. Today, the, the spiritual application for us, I think, is, is just as vivid that in our lives, we should seek to be godly examples to others to follow. And obviously, there's a direct application to fathers, but Paul is speaking of a, him being a spiritual father, being the, the founder of the church. And, and I think that opens the door for a broader application to anyone who is a spiritual leader, whether it's parents over their children or whether it's an, an elder in a church or a deacon or a spiritual leader of other kinds, Sunday school teacher as I even referenced last week, or any believer who desires to influence other people, there's a lot from this passage that we can glean. The main goal of the Apostle Paul as their spiritual father in this passage is to exhort them by his own example and his own teaching to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Worthy of the God who called them into His own kingdom and glory. So he's speaking as a father to the church. And he's saying that basically, I'm presenting myself as an example for you so that your walk with Christ in following God would imitate my example. That you would consecrate your lives to God's service and to His kingdom. So, speaking as a spiritual father, how did Paul seek to influence these believers in in a way to walk worthy of their calling? Well, that's how I'm dividing up the passage uh, this morning. So, as a spiritual father, the first thing that Paul does is he reminds them of his example of being a hard worker. And whether in the family, kids need to see their dad as a hard worker, or within the church, or within your job setting, whoever you're trying to influence as a godly example, they need to see that within us. And being a hard worker is one of those markers. Notice again verse 9. What Paul is saying to the brethren at Thessalonica as their spiritual father. He says, as you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So Paul again seems to be expanding his defense against the charge of being greedy and loving money that apparently was being aimed at him. This issue no doubt arose because Paul did ask for offerings of money, right, through his ministry, but who is he collecting money for? The poor saints in Jerusalem. Not for himself. So because he was making appeals for giving, they just automatically assumed, okay, it's all for him. He just wants to, to line his own pockets with their money, and then once he gets enough, he's going he's gonna, to uh, move on down the road. So in many ways, he's saying that is not right because you remember, you recall, brethren, that I worked hard when I was among you. 
I worked and I earned my way. And later on, in 2 Thessalonians, he's going to say, I never even took anybody's bread without paying for it. So it's the exact opposite. They know that. He knows they know that. But he's just reminding them that he was not greedy like so many of the traveling philosophers and religious people of the day. He wasn't out to, to, um, to just make himself rich. But his enemies were out to tar and feather him. Okay? To bring up false accusations against him to try to undermine his testimony and his witness. And this is one of the big areas where he received a lot of attacks. Notice he says that uh, you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship. These words suggest that Paul's work was tiring. It was hard. It was fatiguing. And then he adds to it, working night and day. Uh, Doesn't mean necessarily 24-7, but he was working during the daytime and he was working during the nighttime. Uh, in order to provide for his own means. That was Paul's strategy when he was planting a church. It's interesting that the Jewish custom of the rabbis said that every boy should learn a trade and that even the rabbis should not make a living by teaching. That was the Jewish rabbinic wisdom of the day. That every rabbi that even went around teaching still needed to work to help support himself in that ministry. Christ actually set a different example. Remember when he told his disciples to go out two by two, he told them to stay with those who are worthy and eat and drink whatever they give you for the laborer is worthy of his wages. So, so Christ actually established a different pattern, but Paul chose not to make use of that until the church was established. Once the church was established, then he would receive voluntary support. Remember, he, he and his uh, co-laborers lived with uh, Lydia in Philippi for a while. They probably were supported by Jason in Thessalonica. And then once he left, he would receive financial gifts from them. But when he's planting the church, when he's there for the first time trying to preach the Gospel, he would not accept anything from anybody. Because he didn't want that false rumor to undermine his character. Now what work and labor is Paul talking about? Well, we know in Acts chapter 18 verse 3 that Paul was a tent maker. Uh, probably his father was a tent maker. And tents were made out of leather or a canvas made from goat's hair. And much of that goat's hair came from Paul's hometown area in Cilicia. So that may be another reason why he became a tent maker by trade. But Paul worked hard to support himself and and even the others while they were planting the church. He was committed to that. So what he's trying to communicate to them in verse 9, and he says to them, you recall, when we were there, I was making tents, I was working, I set up a shop, I was, I was earning money to pay for our own expenses. You know that to be true. So in other words, he was a hard worker. That was his example. He was a hard worker. And every spiritual leader really should, should have that reputation. He's, he's basically saying that I'm not like those people who have 
you know, rich fathers and they can put you on the board of an energy company that you're not qualified in any way to do, but you, but you make a ton of cash uh, even though you're totally unqualified. I'm not that kind of a person. I don't know, can't think of anybody, but fits that description. But he says, I was a, I was a hard worker among you. And, and again, because of the accusations that would undermine the gospel. So he had to protect his reputation because he was protecting the gospel and the glory of God. So notice what he goes on to say in verse 9, that he didn't want to be a burden to any of them. Because many of those who came to faith were poor. You know, they were struggling to make ends meet. Some of them were more affluent, we know, particularly in Thessalonica. But uh, many of them would not have been. Uh, later on, when 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, when, when Paul describes the, the, the Macedonian churches, that would be Thessalonica and Philippi, he says they gave out of their great poverty. So many of them within the church did not have much money. So he didn't want to be a burden on any one of them to think that they had to support him while he's planting the church. So the, I think the, the, the lesson that he's stating here is that spiritual leaders, spiritual fathers who want to influence other people, they need to be men of character, hard workers, not lazy, not undisciplined, not idle, and to demonstrate that work is good. It's a gift of God. It's how God has ordained that we provide for our means. So as their spiritual father, he's giving them his own work ethic as an example for them to imitate. So that's the first thing he does. The second thing he emphasizes also is that he was an example of being gospel-centered in his life. He said, we came among you, we, we, we worked hard, we labored, we worked night and day so as not to be a burden to you. And we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We endured all that hardship for the privilege and the high calling of proclaiming Jesus Christ to you so that you might believe and be saved. So he's saying that even though I was working a, a long hours on this job, my heart was for the gospel of Christ. And so in that sense, he offers himself as another godly example as their spiritual father. As a spiritual leader, obviously we need to be preaching the gospel, living the gospel, certainly. Sharing the gospel when we have opportunities. That's what a godly father does. That's what a spiritual father does. He seeks to proclaim the gospel to those who will listen as the Spirit of God opens doors and gives us opportunity. In effect, what Paul is saying to these Thessalonians, that as your spiritual father... I had the precious treasure of infinite value to give to lost sinners. And my heart was to do that. And I'll even go work hard during the day just for the privilege to be a godly witness to people. That was my calling. I'm your spiritual father. That's what I'm committed to. And it's interesting that that example had a powerful influence upon the Thessalonians. Because you remember back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, after he preached the gospel and they embraced it, they went out and preached the gospel. 
because they saw it in Him. And I, I wish my life was more of an example of that. But this is, this is what He's exhorting them to, to really see in Him as their spiritual Father. Hopefully that they will imitate that as well. He was a very Gospel-centered man. Notice that he says that what he proclaimed was the Gospel of God. That's where the Gospel gets its authority from because it comes from God. It doesn't come from man. This is God's Gospel. And if it's God's Gospel, then it should never be changed or altered or compromised because this is the good news that God gives us. So that's the authority of the Gospel is because it is the Gospel of God. It's also where the Gospel gets its power. Because by the Spirit of God, the Gospel can change the heart from unbelief to belief. Because God's behind the Gospel. And God can reach down and change the heart of man. That's why I said to the Thessalonians in chapter 1 verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Why? It's the gospel of God. God stands behind it. God blesses it with His power to change hearts. And because it's the gospel of God, it's also why we should have boldness in proclaiming it. That we can speak with courage and boldness because we're not just delivering the word of men to other people. We're delivering the God-endorsed, God-given, God-inspired gospel which is necessary for someone to be saved. In Romans 1.16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So by way of example, as our spiritual father, which we as fathers and all spiritual leaders really can seek to imitate, is not only are we a hard worker, we're not known for being lazy or undisciplined, but we're also faithful in proclaiming the gospel when opportunity arises. So that Paul was a Spirit-filled, gospel-saturated man with a passion to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And he says, you're my spiritual children. I'm leaving you an example. Imitate me is the implication. Follow suit. The third example that he gives them as, a, as their spiritual father is, their, uh, is of his godly character. And we find both his character and also his conversation were both godly. In verse 10, we find his character. You are witnesses and so is God. So now he's not only appealing to their witness, but also to God himself. How devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. I mean, how many of us in this room today could appeal to God as a witness to the godliness of our life? Hopefully, many. But he says, we were devout, we were upright, and we were blameless. This is how we behaved when we were among you. Now, there's probably nuances of difference between these three words, certainly. Uh, the word devout, 
probably speaks to his relationship to God. He was devoted to God. He was devout in his relationship with the Lord. He served the Lord. He was trying to do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. He was devout in his relationship to God. The word uprightly really has the idea of living according to God's law. Living a righteous life. And this may be emphasizing his relationship with others. Could also be his relationship with God, but he lived according to God's law in relation to his duty to, to other people. He lived uprightly. He didn't mistreat others, he didn't abuse others. And then, thirdly, he was without blame, which may just speak to his overall general public reputation. He didn't have any glaring faults, that he was in line with honorable behavior among other people. He was not accused, again, of, of lying or cheating or stealing, but he had, a, he had a good reputation among other people. He had a blameless life. And he said, when we lived among you, you know and God knows how devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly we behaved. This was our behavior among you. And all spiritual leaders, whoever seeks to influence other people, should be known for their godly character. And let us all by God's grace seek to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. Let us not be known for people who love the world or the things of the world. Let us be known as people who love God first and foremost and love our neighbor as ourselves. As Paul exhorts the, the Romans, let us... Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Let's walk in the light as God is in the light and then we'll have fellowship with one another. Let us be known for that godly character. And then he goes on and he adds in, in verse 11, not only was his behavior godly, so was his conversation. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children. Again, spiritual fathers, godly fathers, whether in the home or spiritual leaders at work or in church or whatever, we need to have godly speech, godly words. Again, there's nuances of difference between these three words. Exhorting literally means to come alongside someone in order to urge them and to, to their duties to God and to others. You exhort. You come alongside and you, you give instruction. You seek to, to urge them and motivate them to fulfill in obedience their duties to God and to man. Exhorting. On top of that, he also encouraged. And this word really emphasizes to instill someone with courage and cheer. That if they're, if they're depressed, you, you, you try to, to build up their spirit, if you will, so that they, they have more joy in their life. This particular word encouraging was used of the people who came and consoled Martha and Mary at the death of their brother, Lazarus. And they were distraught, they were distressed, and their friends came along and tried to encourage them, tried to instill courage in the face of the sorrow and cheer 
It's also used of encouraging those who are faint-hearted. Paul will use it that way later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Those who are discouraged, they're just faint-hearted. And, and we need the brethren to come in alongside and to encourage their hearts so they're not so gloomy and discouraged and depressed all the time. And Paul says, your spiritual father, I was speaking words to encourage you. And how fathers need to do that with our children as well. He also, this word is used in the light of those who are beat down by opposition and tribulation. And this may very well be the idea that Paul is using it here. I came to encourage you because you're, you're being persecuted for your faith. And many of y'all were, were losing heart. You were discouraged. You were distraught. And I came and, and tried to lift you up with courage and cheer to remain faithful to Christ regardless of the outward difficulties and challenges of your life. And then imploring to urge solemnly with personal conviction dealing with matters of great importance. Just imploring you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And I did this as a father would his own children. And notice I did it to each one of you. Which implies certainly you give attention to individuals in their need. How important it is for all of us, especially spiritual leaders and fathers, to seek to be a godly example in this way to others. Robert Murray McShane, one of the Scottish uh, reformers, young man, preacher really, said that what his people needed more than anything else in his public ministry was, he said, my, my people's greatest need is my personal godliness. My personal holiness. So whoever we're trying to influence, whether it's a leader in the church trying to influence the flock, whether it's a father in the home trying to influence his children, whether it's people at work, whoever I'm trying to influence, what they need to see is a commitment and godliness in my life. That's what Paul is, is saying. We are imploring you, exhorting you, encouraging you. And that was our godly behavior and our godly conversation. They need to see that it's real in us. Not that we're perfect. We need to be honest with our failures and our shortcomings as well. But the people we're trying to minister to need to see that within us. They need to see our faith in Christ, our love for Christ. And they need to see us live that kind of a life. So again, for all the leaders in our church, the elders, the deacons, the Sunday school teachers, co-op teachers, parents, anyone who's an employee or a teenager. We have an opportunity to influence other people. And they need to see us as an example of godliness. Not only in our behavior, but also in our speech. You're never too young. To have a godly influence on someone else. It's a call for all of us. Not just for some of us. And then we come to the goal. The goal of a godly father's example. 
So all that Paul is setting forth, his example of being a hard worker, his example of being God-centered, his example of being committed to living a life of godliness, both in his behavior and his speech, all of that, Paul says, I was aiming at motivating you that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. See, there's, there's got to be an end goal to wanting to influence people with, with a godly life. And that is we want to see them imitate it so that they can walk in a manner worthy of God who called them into His own kingdom and glory. So when you, when you look at this verse... I want to break it down real quickly in two ways. First off, God has called you, believer, here this morning, to His own kingdom and glory. And I said called you. Notice the the verb here is calls. It's present tense. The God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Now it's true, when, when God first called us, it's an effectual call, It changed our heart. It enabled us to put our faith in Jesus Christ. But that wasn't just a one-time calling in the mind of Paul. This is a a calling that, that is timeless. It continues on. We are still the called. We never just look at our path. Well, I was called back then. No, we're the called now. It's a timeless calling. That's why he puts it in the present tense, I think. That calling never leaves us. We continue and always are those who have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. Again, this call is effectual. It's a call of that we, the, the great uh, illustration is Christ calling Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. This is a call of God upon your heart that, that implants spiritual life into your spiritually dead soul. And awakens you and enables you to see your sin, your need for Christ, and you believe upon the Lord Jesus. It's a call that cannot be refused. Lazarus could not have refused that call of God when Christ called him to come forth and he obeyed. He was empowered to obey. He couldn't have done otherwise. And what we've been called to and are called to is to God's kingdom and God's glory. Now, remember, Paul understands the kingdom in two ways. There's a present form of the kingdom and a future form of the kingdom. The present form of the kingdom that believers are in now, found in Colossians 1.13, for example, where Paul writes, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So every believer has now already been transferred into the kingdom of Christ. And then in Romans 14, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we're living in the kingdom now. And we can experience that righteousness and peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. It's a present kingdom where God is reigning and ruling over His people. But of course, we live in a world where there is much rebellion against God and His kingdom. So we await the final phase, the consummation of the kingdom of God when Christ comes back. Paul speaks of this kingdom in 1 Corinthians 15.50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This future coming glory kingdom that Christ will bring when He returns is an imperishable kingdom. These bodies cannot inherit it because our bodies are mortal. They're perishable. We need a new body. We need to be glorified, which we will get when Christ comes back. Paul also speaks of it in 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So that's the kingdom. The fact that Paul mentions that we that God calls us to His own kingdom and glory probably has the future kingdom foremost in mind. In other words, Paul is trying to be an example to them as their spiritual father because he wants them to walk in a manner worthy of this incredible calling to heaven and glory. The kingdom and glory of God which awaits every child of God. That's our destiny. That's what we have been and are being called to is the kingdom and glory that awaits us in the future. It's incredible. But Paul's heart is for them now to walk in a manner worthy of the God who has called us to that future glory. That incredible kingdom. That's a kingdom, as Peter says, where we'll obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And Paul says, my life with you, my example of being a hard worker, being gospel-centered, being godly in my conduct and conversation, is I long to see you walk in a manner worthy of God. The God who calls you to His eternal future glory. Walk now in a manner worthy of God who calls you. That's his heart. That's what he wants. He uses the, the figure of speech walking, which is, just describes the, the whole manner of, of someone's life. It's just described as walking. You're walking through life. And it's a, it's a figure that describes every aspect of your life, all parts of your life, are made up of your walking, the way that you walk through life. And here he's saying, I want your walk, I want every part of your life to be in a manner worthy of God. And the word worthy here means just to reflect the character of God, to be suitable to to the God who calls you and the glory that He's called you to. And that's why he lived as a spiritual father among them, trying to be a godly example. He wants them to reflect that in their lives so that they walk in a way worthy of their calling. How do we do that? Well, some suggestions. Paul in Romans 6 says, don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. How do we walk worthy of our calling? to daily, regularly be making conscious decisions of putting off the old man, putting on the new man, presenting even our body parts to God for His glory. I like the way that Paul said it also in Colossians 1. He prayed for them that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, 
and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's how we walk worthy of our calling. We live every day in every area of my life to please God, to bear fruit in every good work, and to grow and increase in the knowledge of God through the Word. That's what He wanted for all of them. That's what every father wants for his children. I love when John says in one of his letters that I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's what a godly father and mother want for their kids. That's what godly leaders in a church want for their, their people that worship with them. That's what we want at work when we're trying to have a godly influence with people around us. Or whether we're in school or whether we're in sports. Whatever we're involved in, we want to see them come to know the Lord. And we want to see them live their life in a manner worthy of the God who calls us to His incredible kingdom. We're to live like an heir of the kingdom now. We're to live in such a way that our hope is in the glory to come. To set our mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. That is our calling. So that the goal of Paul again as a spiritual father was to be a godly example of hard work, gospel-centeredness, godly behavior and speech, so that his spiritual children, whoever he's influencing, might imitate him and walk in a manner worthy of the God who called them to glory. Are we living that way? We've watched on television a series dealing with the uh, royal family in England. I don't know if you're that familiar with uh, Prince Charles or not, who's now King Charles. The series that we've watched is really a uh, a sad story of a family that was in basically disarray. It was falling apart. Charles, as a prince in his personal life, And his marriage to Princess Diana was a failure in so many ways. He did not walk in a manner worthy of the kingdom that he would one day inherit. In fact, he disgraced it. The public eye of all the things, all the mistakes, all the blunders, all the bad attitudes. And I'm assuming that this series is somewhat accurate. I think it is. But he was a horrible example of someone who did not walk according to their calling as, one, as an heir of the kingdom. The Apostle Paul doesn't want us to live that kind of a life. He calls each and every one of us who has a sphere of influence other, uh, over other people to seek to follow His example of godliness so that we might influence others first to come to Christ and then secondly to live for Christ. Everyone is watching us. People are watching you. Your friends are watching you. Your unbelieving co-workers are watching you. And what they need to see in us is someone that we're not perfect, but our life is different. That we're trying to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That they might hopefully, as they hear the Gospel, come to know Christ and seek to walk in a similar vein.
I love these words that wrap up the Apostle Paul's life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. Paul was living worthy of his calling. The calling to glory. That's where he had his sight set on. And it helped him and motivated him to live godly now awaiting the coming of that future kingdom. Well, may God help all of us to listen to the Apostle Paul, to take to heart and be challenged in our own lives that we might imitate Paul as he imitates Christ and that we might be an example for others to follow suit as well. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank You for the heart of this spiritual Father who by Your grace and power was the means of birthing uh, all these new baby Christians into Your kingdom. And as a spiritual Father who loves His children, how zealous He was to leave them a godly example in all these areas of His life with the hope and prayer that the Spirit of God would use His example to help them grow closer to Christ so that they too would walk in a manner worthy of God who called them, who calls them into His own kingdom and glory. So Lord, help us to be that kind of an example as well to those whom we seek to influence for the glory of God and the advance of His kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.